Thank you very much, Dix, for that kind introduction. And ladies and gentlemen, I can't tell you what a pleasure and an honor it is to be with you. We're here enjoying this wonderful weekend. Time is limited. I've heard a great deal this morning I'd just like to spend all of my time responding to. But rather than perhaps uh, have a debate with my friend Mr. Bradley or some of the other speakers, let me just break my remarks down into three sections. First, from what I've seen over the last 24 hours, a lot of you would like to know what the National Security Advisor does, so I'm going to spend a couple of minutes telling you about that. Then I want to spend a few minutes just telling you about my background and where I got where I am, and from that you will see that there is a benevolent God, and she does have a sense of humor. <laughs> and third, And then third, I'd like to put those two pieces together and see if I can leave you with a word or two about how my experience taught me to live my daily life today. The National Security Advisor is on the personal staff of the President. And people have asked me, well, what do you do in the course of the day? Well, I spend several hours with the President, and the highlight of that period with the President is every morning for 30 minutes, I sit down with the President and the Vice President, and I give them an update of what's going on in the world. I give them a sense of where the crises are that we'll have to be dealing with. I try to make them aware of problems that are coming up. The rest of my day is spent working with my colleagues in the State Department, the Defense Department, the CIA, the FBI, the USIA, the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in putting together policy options for the President's decision. And my job is done well if, in the course of the day, I bring forward for the President to consider options that have been well thought out, that everybody has had a chance to examine, where the good ideas are allowed to surface and the bad ideas are killed, so that when we take into the President something for his decision, it's been argued out, all views have been heard, Nobody has been restricted from the process. And then when your president, the man you elected to run your executive branch of government, has to make a choice on a national security policy issue, he has all the information needed to do that, and nothing has been kept from him. If I have done that at the end of the day and given that to him, I've done my job. Now, that's my job as director of the National Security Council. As assistant to the president, and a member of his personal staff, I also have direct access and the option of providing my own direct personal advice to the President, in addition to the advice I bring forward from the other members of his cabinet. But in doing that, I always make sure that he hears my advice along with the advice of the other cabinet members. Now that fills up a pretty good chunk of your day, about 16 hours worth. And this all assumes there are no crises going on in the world. But invariably, there is a hot spot. In fact, you never know how something might break. Just two Saturdays ago, I was at a wedding, and Ben Bradley was there with uh, his wife, Sally Quinn. And uh, Meg Greenfield of the Washington Post was there, as was Kay Graham, and a number of other important people from Washington. And we were sitting there in the church, about 700 strong, waiting for the bride to arrive. And all these Washington folks were looking at one another, and suddenly, the beeper that I always have in my pocket started vibrating, meaning that the White House was anxiously wanting to get in touch with me. 
So I stood up in the middle of that church, and Bradley turned around and looked. <laughs> and a number of other people turned around and looked. And I left the church, and I went, and I looked for my driver in my car, and I found all of the fancy communications still there, and I called into the White House, and I learned that the Prime Minister of Turkey had been wounded in an assassination attempt. Fortunately, he was not seriously injured. I gave instructions to my staff, get a message to the Prime Minister from the President expressing our concern, but delight that he was not seriously injured, prepare a note and send it up to the President immediately, and I thought I'd handle that rather efficiently, walk back into the church, and you should see Bradley. <laughs> They're all dying. They're trapped in this church, and they don't know what the story is. And I'm feeling... So I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good about this. As pal, you're a real hot shot. They don't know what's going on. I sit down next to my wife, who is used to this sort of thing. She said, well, what was it this time? I said, uh, the Turkish prime minister was injured slightly. She said, for God's sakes, that was on CNN five hours ago. <laughs> but... Now, how did I get to this rather august position? I started out as an immigrant, first-generation son in New York. As you heard mentioned, my parents were immigrants from the island of Jamaica who came up here in the early 20s seeking economic opportunity to raise a family. I was born in Harlem along with my sister, and I was raised in the South Bronx section of New York City. I went through the public school system. I was perhaps as undistinguished a young man to go through that public school system as they've ever had. My kindergarten was at Fort Apache, as you may have heard from movie fame. I was left back and put in a special education class when I was in the fourth grade. But then they skipped me a couple of years when I got into junior high school, which I think had something to do with crowding in the school system of New York as opposed to academic achievement. But eventually, I graduated with a 72 average and went to the City College of New York, one of the finest public institutions of higher learning in the country. And it was there that I entered engineering. Why? Because my parents expected it. They just expected it. At that time, engineers made money. Go be an engineer. It'll be wonderful. My parents never lectured me about what to do, or they never sat down and read books to me. There was just an expectation in that immigrant family that you would work hard and you would do well. And so I went off to college to try that. And I tried engineering for a couple of weeks until I met this very important person in my life, a professor of mechanical drawing who was instrumental in my life. Because he stood up one day and he said, imagine a cone in space being intersected by a plane. Draw that figure. And I said, I'm out of here. I immediately went and joined ROTC. I joined ROTC. I graduated four and a half years later with a C minus average in everything except ROTC, which was straight A. And because of my straight A's, you mixed it all together, I was C plus, and I graduated. Went into the United States Army, just expecting to serve for as long as my nation wanted me to serve, 
and it turned out to be a career of 30 years that has given me the privilege of commanding 30 fine young soldiers for the first time in my life in Germany in 1959, and then going back to Germany 28 years later in 1986 to the same province and commanding 75,000 young soldiers to include soldiers of the same platoon I had commanded some 28 years earlier. The opportunity to serve your country in that way, the opportunity to help the nation provide the first service that a nation must provide to its people, and that's provide for its common security. That's why you have a military establishment. It's expensive, but there is a threat in this world. There is a need for a military establishment. And until that long sought day comes, when men and women learn that there are better ways to run their lives without weapons, without the threat of war, without the threat of nuclear annihilation, until that day comes, I submit to you that it is important for us to be strong. It is important for no potential adversary in the world to see that we are not willing to fight and die for what we believe in, and we are willing to put our treasure to the task of protecting this nation. As I go about my daily work, both as an Army officer and a National Security Advisor, I try to do exactly what Mr. Bradley talked about, to be honest, to tell the American people what they need to hear from their government. Government officials owe the American people the truth. It is my oath of office as an officer in the United States Army. It is an oath that I treasure as an official of the United States government. That doesn't require me to leak classified information. If there's something I shouldn't say because of national security interest, don't say it. But we don't have a right to give out information that we should protect for the people's benefit. But at the same time, public officials have an obligation to speak the truth at all times. Now, in the interest of time, I'm just going to summarize by passing on to you a few thoughts that I have as I've heard the presentations and as I've had a chance to speak to individual students. What I learned as a second lieutenant in Germany at the age of 21 is what I have been using for the subsequent 30 years. I ran a corps the same way I ran a platoon. And what I learned is that the only thing that counts in an organization of any kind are the people not the program, not the organizational chart, the people. And if there's one thing you want to work on as you start out in your young lives, is get an appreciation for the value of interpersonal relations, the value of people in an organization. Always be sensitive to the needs of people. As you work within an organization, always, always provide loyalty. Provide loyalty to the people you work for, Provide loyalty to the people who work for you. Always approach every task that may face you with selflessness. Don't be concerned for yourself. Only be concerned for the task that is before you. The one thing you start to build now and will have for the rest of your life is your reputation. Do nothing, nothing to tarnish that reputation or to ever put it at risk. Always be a problem solver. 
I often told young lieutenants, the day you don't have soldiers coming into you putting problems on your desk, the day you're not overwhelmed with problems, you're out of business, you're no longer leading. People are not bringing things to you to solve. Always be a problem solver. Always be able to shrug off disappointment. You will face failure. You will face disappointment. The only use in, of failure and disappointment is to learn from it. And I have learned more from my failures than I have from my successes. And one last item, because I'm sure I am running out of time, and I want to take at least one question, is don't be consumed by ambition and don't be overwhelmed by success. Always have an oxygen mask in your right hand invisibly. And any time you're starting to think you're somebody and you're starting to float, just take a good deep breath of that oxygen and get yourself back down on the ground. Now after a few years, you will all, I hope, marry successfully as I did and you will no longer need an oxygen mask. <laughs> In the interest of time, let me just stop right there and say thank you for allowing me to be part of this weekend. God bless all of you, and good luck to all of you. We'll have time for a question, and this young lady here. Hello, my name is Hi. Anna Muzzy, nice and I'm from Ohio. And I was curious what you feel your role will be in either of the next two administrations in, in the fall of this year. Uh, in the fall of this year, I'll just keep doing what I am doing as oh, a in the winter, I'm sorry. active duty military officer. I don't participate in any partisan political activities. At the end of this administration, uh, regardless of who the next president is, I would expect to leave my position and return to the Army if the Army has a job waiting for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much.